The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. of all these points that we've been discussing, we're going to now consider, as you could tell from our worship, why all these things are true and how they play out, and it is all for God's glory. So let's read this psalm together, please. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name, tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. For the Lord, excuse me, for great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods, for all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him, strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the word is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. If you would, bow your heads with me together and let's pray. Father, we thank you that there is no glory that we could give to you that is not already due you. We thank you so much for this Reformation Day, for this anniversary of of, of refocusing of the church on your word and on who you really are. So we thank you, Father, so much for the men who have come before us, for the saints who have come before us, for their commitment to your word, to their commitment to faithfulness, for their submission to your, to your will. And I pray, Father, that we as a church might be submitted in the same way, that we would, in recognition of our sinfulness and of our need of a Savior, that we might be prompted to evangelize, that we might be prompted to go and tell the truth of how you have sent your son, how the truth of our sin is not left at that, but that you were faithful, that you were gracious, and that you sent your son to die, to take on the just penalty of our sin, and how now we have Christ's righteousness imputed to us. So we thank you, Father, so much for that. And let it change us, Father. Let us go and be faithful. Father, we thank you for this time as we gather together to consider your word. We pray, Father, that you would be with your servant, Greg, that he would preach the word faithfully. I pray that you might bless his preparation. Father, we know now that we need your Holy Spirit. We cannot, by any means of our own, have any sort of application of this word without your Holy Spirit applying it to us. So we pray, Father, to send your spirit. We need you now. Help us as we Consider your word to consider the truths of it and of our need of repentance every day and of our need of repentance now. Lord, that you would be glorified. And we thank you now. 
Amen. I invite you to turn your Bibles to Psalm 115 this morning. Like last week, we will sort of begin in the Psalms, because that's where we have been sort of spending our time through the summer and early part of the fall. But to capture what we would want to capture this morning, we will uh, sort of run from Psalm 115 and um, move around a bit throughout the text of Scripture. Uh, Psalm 115, Pastor Frank preached uh, a number of weeks ago. You can go back onto the uh, Grace on the Ashley website and you can find that sermon where he dealt with sort of the, uh, the details of Psalm 115. Uh, beyond the first three verses, but this morning we'll just uh, begin with uh, verses 1 through 3, Psalm 115, and we'll roll from there. The psalmist writes, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. For the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness, why should the nations say, Where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. The word of the Lord. The first verse of that psalm captures really the essence of what was going on during the Protestant Reformation. The Reformation was about a lot of things. It was about many points of theology that we've been looking at in these last weeks. It it, it revolved around theologically the whole issue of justification. How can a man or a woman be made right with God? The church that was prominent in the day of the Reformers, the Roman Catholic Church, had an answer for that question. But as the Reformers began to read the words of Scripture themselves, they realized how far away from what the Scriptures taught were the teachings of the church of their day. And it wasn't just an argument about theology. It's important for us to understand that. We don't want to view the Reformers. We don't want to regard someone like Luther as being someone who is just a sort of a theological argumentarian, someone who just got some cheap thrill arguing theology with other people. We meet those kinds of people. They exist in our day, right? You meet them and you run from them because who wants to, you know, find and deal with an argumentative person who just wants to argue their points of theology all the time? That wasn't the issue for the Reformation, and it was not the heart of Luther. Uh, Just an argumentative spirit doesn't lead one to do what Luther did at Worms when he stood before the council and said, you know, I won't recant my writings. Whatever that means, I won't do it. There's more than an argumentative spirit at work here. You see, Luther, like the rest of the Reformers, understood that there was something so much more important that was at stake. It wasn't just about parsing out verses. It wasn't just about getting theology right. He understood, and the Reformers understood, that what they were fighting for was not some personal preference, was not some sort of theological soapbox. At the heart of what was at stake was the very glory of God Himself. They saw what they were doing, and in reality were doing, as defending the glory of God. When a man who loves God, or a woman who loves God, who has truly been captivated by His glory, has been transformed by His glory in the face of His Son, Jesus Christ, 
experiences that reality and then lives in light of the glory of God, they will have a passion to defend the glory of God when it's attacked. And what Luther saw in his day was the glory of God being exchanged and substituted for the glory of men. He saw a religious establishment that had long ago abandoned any concern for the glory of God and was all about exalting itself and holding people hostage to the, their own power and bilking people out of their, their very scarce resources in order to build up their own kingdoms rather than to emphasize the glory of God. And so when Luther nails his 95 Theses on the, the door of the church, and when all of the other events begin to unfold, it's important that we understand that Luther is fighting for the glory of God. That's what he's after. He isn't trying to overthrow the church. He isn't trying to start a fight. He's trying to plead with the established religion of the day to go back to a focus on the glory of God. Because that's what's at stake. And there's a sense in which, as we think through what we've been studying in these weeks, the main soul is the idea that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, uh, in Christ alone. The authority for all of that being the, the Word of God, the Scriptures alone. We have to understand that this other piece here, the glory of God alone, is really the thing that, that ties all of the other pieces together. If we lose any of the other pieces, it, it diminishes the glory of God. And I hope that towards the end of the message this morning, I'll be able to tie that together in a way that, that makes that clear. But the issue at the end of the day in the Protestant Reformation, and really for us today as we talk about this issue of salvation and justification and how men are made right with God, the, the, the same question that was on the, the table in Luther's day is on the table in our day, just in different ways. And the question is this, is salvation something that is a work of God alone in the heart of human beings? Or is it a cooperative effort between God and men, where God does His part and we do our part, and somehow in the mix salvation comes? Because how we, answers, how we answer that question determines who gets the glory. If we understand that salvation from start to finish is a work of God, then we can say at the end of the conversation, sola deo gloria, to God alone be the glory. If we come to the conclusion, as had the Roman church in Luther's day, and has many segments of the evangelical Christian church in our day, that somehow God does His part, He takes us partially down the road, and then we come in and we do our part, and somehow when we do our part and we mix it with the part that God's done, salvation comes to fruition. If we answer the question that way, then regardless of how any person wants to deny it, at the end of the day, we deserve some of the credit. We get some of the glory. And I hope that you see this morning as we work our way through Scripture that the glory of God is literally a theme that runs from the beginning of Scripture all the way to the end. And I hope that you get the idea right at the outset that God has never and He will never tolerate competition for His glory. It is a critical thing for us to understand. God has never co competed for His glory, and He will never compete with anyone else for His glory. He stands alone. We'll see that this morning. Before we start making our way through Scripture and, and, and sort of seeing this come off of the page, we need to get some definitions. What, is, what are we talking about 
when we talk about uh, the glory of God. And what are we talking about when we say we need to glorify God? These are sort of church words that don't always have a clear and easy definition. If I were to ask you this morning, uh, you're walking around with a like sort of a, uh, uh, you know, a, a microphone talk show guy, and I put the microphone in your face and I said, would you explain to us, please, what do I mean by the glory of God? I want you to be honest with me for a minute. How many of you think that would be an easy task? Come on. Come on. Let's, let's be honest. How many of you think that would be challenging on the spot to give an answer to? How many of you are still asleep and it's the introduction? Okay. Thanks. Thanks, Ron. Appreciate the honesty, bro. Um, it's, it's a word we use, but it's not a word that we always have clearly defined in our minds. And as we start looking at trying to put together a definition for what is the glory of God, we find that smarter people than us have had trouble too, so that should make us feel better, right? Martin Lloyd-Jones says this. He says, the glory of God is something which no man can define. Well, that's not encouraging. He says, the glory of God is His essential and ultimate attribute. It means His greatness, His splendor, his majesty. Well, that takes us a little ways down the road. John Piper says it this way. He says the glory of God is this. The outward radiance of the intrinsic worth and beauty and greatness of his manifold perfections. Now, you have to say that like ten times to even understand what he's communicating. But if you do say it ten times, it actually makes an awful lot of sense. And it probably is a good way of capturing this idea of the glory of God. The key words in there are the outward radiance. This is the, the visible outward projection of something that's internal to who God is. That's good. It involves his beauty. It involves his greatness. It involves all of his perfections sort of combined. He comes at this from Isaiah chapter 6, verse 3, where we see this vision of Isaiah he sees of heaven and he speaks of the angels and he says and one called to another and said holy 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 is the Lord of hosts the whole earth is full of his glory and here the holiness of God is connected to the glory of God and the holiness of God is a description of their reality that God is completely set apart from all creation that he is completely Unique from anything else that exists. That there is nothing like Him. That whatever God is, in essence, He has no competition, and He's set apart from everything, and nothing else is like Him in the fullest of all senses. He's absolutely unique. Or as Piper likes to say, it, re- re- it refers to the, the Godness of God. Uh, maybe that's helpful, I don't know. John MacArthur makes it a little more simple. He says, the glory of God is this. The glory of God is the sum of God's divine attributes and his divine nature. When you take all of the attributes of God, everything that God is, all of his nature and all of his attributes, his love, his grace, his kindness, his mercy, his wrath, his justice, his holiness, all of those things, and you add them all together, that is what the glory of God is. A sense in which God's glory is like a diamond that we hold up that has all of these many sort of facets. And as the rays of light shine through a particular facet, we see with more clarity and beauty the glory of God. But we never capture it fully all at once. Ballinger writes this. He says, the glory of God is the invisible qualities, character, or attributes of God displayed in a visible or knowable way. 
I think that's probably the best one I've seen. I would only change the word or to and. The glory of God is the invisible qualities, character, and attributes of God displayed in sort of a visible sort of a way. Or maybe we could say is displayed in a perceptible way. Because we don't always see it in a visible way. We'll see in the Old Testament God did dis- display His glory in visible ways. In the face of Christ, He displays His glory in a visible way. But God doesn't only display His glory in a visible way. He also displays it in other ways that are perceptible or knowable. So that's a little bit about what the glory of God. What does it mean to glorify Him? If, if, that is, if glory is something that He is... What does it mean to glorify Him? Well, it can't mean to to ascribe to Him or to give Him something that He doesn't already have, right? It can't mean that. Because God needs nothing, right? He is completely self-sufficient. He needs nothing. I can add nothing of any value to who He is. So when we say to glorify God, we're not talking about to make Him glorious. To glorify God is to highlight or to magnify His glory. Or again, as John Piper likes to say, to see his glory, to savor his glory, to celebrate his glory. So the glory of God is the sum of all of his attributes, displayed in a way that is perceptible to us. And to glorify him then means to to perceive those things, his glory, and to highlight it, to call attention to it, to see it, to enjoy who he is, and to celebrate all that he is. That's to glorify God. Maybe a helpful illustration would be if we think in terms of the sun and the stars in the sky. Every night I walk my dog somewhere around 9.30, 10 o'clock. And on a clear night you can look up into the sky and you see the stars. And I'll often look up and, and see the stars. And occasionally as I'm seeing them, I, I think something along the lines of, man, that's pretty cool. Those stars are awesome. Especially on a beautiful clear night when you can see them all. But it's one thing to walk around my neighborhood and to look up and to see the stars and to, to, to have some perception that, that they're awesome things. It's another thing altogether to pull out a telescope and to look through a telescope that zooms in on a particular star and helps me to see it with greater clarity. It takes me closer and allows me to see the detail in a way that I can't see just walking around in my neighborhood as it magnifies the star, I'm more astounded by what I see. The sun is the closest star to us. It's a big luminous ball of plasma held together by gravity. Diameter of the sun would take 109 Earths to span its diameter. The interior of the sun could hold 1.3 million Earths. The temperature of the sun is about 11,000 degrees Fahrenheit on the surface. And its thermonuclear core, about 27 million degrees. That's hotter than Charleston in August. The air pressure, 350 billion times the Earth's air pressure. We can't even begin to conceive of the reality of what the sun actually is. But we can capture a little bit of it. If we zoom in on it and we begin to see it in detail and we begin to consider its vastness and we begin to consider its radiance and its the sheer power of the heat that emanates off of the star, it really becomes something for us that, that is incredible and that is awesome. 
And when we glorify God, in, in some ways perhaps it's the same thing. We navigate through our lives and we realize that God is awesome and He is great and He is out there and He has all of these attributes. But when we glorify Him, we zoom in on Him and we see Him with greater clarity and we, and we appreciate more the details of who He is because He comes alive. It's not because we change who He is, but we see it more clearly and we ab- observe it more internally. We celebrate it. You couldn't get close enough to that. Imagine what it would be like to stand on the surface of the sun. I mean, there's no spacesuit that could do that for you. Be consumed in a second. The closer you get to the divine attributes of God, to the glory of God, the more astounded you are by who He is. And that's the consistent testimony of Scripture. And so when the psalmist, like Matt, uh, well, Matt's not the psalmist, but he read the psalmist a few minutes ago. Maybe Matt could write a psalm. I don't know. Um, psalm 96, but when the psalmist that Matt read for us earlier says, Ascribe to the Lord the glory to his name. What is he saying to us? Is he saying, add something to God that he doesn't already have? He's saying, no. He's saying, see and savor and celebrate the glory that is due someone as magnificent as him. He's pleading with us to zoom in and observe the Lord and celebrate who He is. That's what it is to glorify Him. Everything God does, everything He does, is toward the end of glorifying Himself. And He is jealous for His own glory. In Isaiah chapter 42, listen to what the Lord says in verse 8. I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to whom? To no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Isaiah forty eight eleven. For my own sake, for my own sake I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. God will tolerate absolutely no competition for his glory. No one deserves the glory of God but God alone. Throughout the history of humanity, men have consistently robbed God of the glory due His name. Either by ascribing it to things that do not deserve it or by taking some of it for themselves. And God does not take that lightly. Because everything He does is toward the end of glorifying Himself. Now that sounds a little weird to modern ears, doesn't it? That everything God does, He does for His own glory. Because we sometimes meet people who act like that. And we don't like to be around them. Is that fair to say? Do you know people who seem to exist for their own glory? You know them because every time you meet them, they tell you how glorious they are. They want to bless you by a clearer vision of how wonderful they are. And in case you didn't notice on your own, they will gladly tell you. Right? You know the sorts of folks that I'm talking about. We can't stand people like that, can we? We run from them in the grocery store. Why would we want to worship a God who's like that? Who wants us to constantly observe how wonderful He is? Or to put it another way, how can God be truly out for my good if He's primarily out for Himself first? So which is it? Is He out for my good or is He out for His glory? I'll let you think about that for a second. The answer is yes. The answer is yes. God is out for both at the same time. Because the more God magnifies His glory, 
the better off I am. That is the answer to the question. By God glorifying himself, by God magnifying his own worth and value as the best, most loving thing in the world, that is the best, most loving thing he could ever do to me. If God truly, truly loves us, he will give us the best thing for us, right? And if the best thing for us is him, then glorifying himself is the best thing in the world he could ever do for us. So that we might see who he is and be drawn to him and away from other things. You see, God himself is the best thing in the world for every human being. He is the fulfillment of the longing of every human heart. He is the supply of every single need of every human life. He is the only one who truly satisfies the soul of a man or a woman. God himself. The battle we fight as human beings is we are drawn to everything else apart from him. We are, we are drawn to false idols to worship. We are drawn to all sorts of things that say, come after me, come after me, I will bless you. Come after me, I will make you happy. Come after me, chase after me, invest your time and your resources and your energy and your mind in coming after me and I will fulfill you and I will satisfy you and I will give you all the things that you're missing in your life. And it's all an illusion from an evil enemy who is determined to do nothing other than blind us to the reality that God is the most glorious being in the universe and the best thing for us. And so God comes along and he says, observe my glory, see who I am, see what I can do for you and be drawn to me because as you're drawn to me, you find the fulfillment of everything that you could possibly need. And so when God glorifies himself, he's doing the best thing in the world he could ever do for us. The only way God would be evil in glorifying himself is if there was someone or something better to which he could point our attention. But there isn't. The Westminster Catechism says this, man's chief end is to, do you know this? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's not scripture, but it's a reflection of truth in scripture. And it's a beautiful truth that the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. The, to glorify God and enjoy God are not two different things that are at odds with one another. They're, in fact, one and the same aim. The more we glorify God, the more joy erupts in our hearts. The, the source of true joy is glorifying God. God's glory is meant to be all-satisfying to men, not boring. I will tell you, I have been in church environments on many occasions in my life and I have observed the worship of God's people. And if that was the only thing I had to go on to determine whether God was truly glorious, boy, I'd have a really bad picture, right? You've been there too. If God is the most glorious being in the universe, if He is the fulfillment of every longing of every heart and every soul, if He is the supply of every need of every human being, if He is completely unlike anything else and highly exalted over everything else, what does it look like to ascribe to Him the glory due His name in the context of worship? Jonathan Edwards said this, God is glorified not only by His glories being seen, but by His glory 
being rejoiced in. When those that see it delight in it, God is more glorified than if they only see it. Do you see the difference? It's one thing to to see or to mentally understand the glory of God. Okay, God is glorious. But it's another thing to rejoice in the glory of God, isn't it? And God is more glorified when not only we see His glory and understand it, but we celebrate it and rejoice in it. Right? We can worship for a lot of different reasons, can't we? We can worship because it's duty. We can just come to church because that's what you do on Sunday. That's what good Christian people do on Sunday. They come to church and they worship. It's one thing to worship out of duty. It's another thing to worship because we rejoice to worship. It would be the difference between me... This is going to be an illustration that probably falls flat, but we'll go anyway. Um, Coming up on my wife's anniversary and showing up at the house with flowers. Now, this is a bad illustration because she's allergic to about every flower, so this would not be a blessing. But imagine my wife is not allergic to flowers. And I showed up for our anniversary with a, a dozen roses. And I said to her, said to her, happy anniversary, honey. It's our anniversary and it was my duty to get you roses today. Did you hear all the ladies out there? There was like a, oh... Now, I can say I I, I did what I was supposed to do, right? Ladies, how many of you would be honored by that? Just raise your hand. It's not just the act. It's not just me recognizing the reality that is sufficient for the moment. What makes the moment work or not work is not that I do it or don't do it, but that I do it because I rejoice to do it, right? Ladies are are excited when their husband does something wonderful for them, not because they had to, but because it was their joy to do it. Does that make sense? And that's what Edwards is trying. All the ladies are like, yes, men, I need you to say yes. (laughs) That's what Edwards is trying to communicate, that God's glory is magnified not just when we see it, but when we enjoy it. All right, we'll go move on from there. I've just made all the husbands get in trouble including probably myself. So, what is this glory of God, and how does it show up in the text of Scripture? The glory of God is all over the pages of Scripture. You can go all the way back to the very beginning, and we see the glory of God in creation. And I'm going to give you a sort of a, a jet tour in five minutes of the Old Testament. So buckle up. We, the glory of God is, is visible in creation. The psalmist declares in Psalm 19.1, listen to this, the heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims His handiwork. Isaiah chapter 43. I will say to the north, go up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, who I formed and made. God created people, why? For His own glory, not because He was lonely or bored. God created as a display of His glory. He created people as a display of His glory. He created the heavens and everything that there is as a display of His glory. And so when you and I go and see the creation that He's made and we marvel at it and we we see the Grand Canyon and we go, wow, that is incredible. We can in, in truth glorify God because God made that in order to display His glory. So He displays His glory in creation. 
You flip a few pages over in your Bible into Exodus and you see the, the glory of God on Mount Sinai. Do you remember God calls Moses to lead his people? And Moses says, God, I'm not too sure I'm up for the task. Uh, I'm not sure if I can handle this, God. I, I'm not sure that I can, uh, I can live up to what you've called me to do. God, I need a little help. Can you do this for me? He says in, in Exodus chapter 33, verse 18. He says, please show me your glory. In chapter 33, verse 19 of Exodus, and he said, God is, or God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, my glory pass before you, and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I'll be gracious, and I'll show mercy to whom I'll show mercy. But he said to me, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there's a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, And while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock. I will cover you with my hand until I've passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back. But my face shall not be seen. God acquiesces to the request of Moses. Okay, Moses, I'll show you my glory. But as a sinful human being, you couldn't bear. You could not bear to see the fullness of my glory. It would consume you in an instant. It would be like a human being standing on the surface of the sun, but infinitely worse. So Moses, here's what we'll do. I'll put you in the cleft of the rock, and I'll cover you by my hand. And after my glory passes by, I'll give you a little tiny glimpse of the backside of it. You can survive that. And so that's what God does. He gives him a a glimpse of the afterglow of His glory, and that's enough for Moses. In Exodus chapter 34, verse 5, the Lord descended in a cloud and stood with Moses there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him and did exactly what He said He would do. Moses spent some time with the Lord up there and the cloud which represented the glory of God was there with Moses for some time. That's when the Ten Commandments were written. Exodus 34, verse 29, Moses comes down the mountain and something is interesting about Moses. After being in the presence of the glory of God, in verse 29, when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, he came down from the mountain. Moses did not know that the skin on his face shone because he'd been talking with God. What was that about? It's a reflection of the glory of God. You know, when I was a kid, I used to have these little glow-in-the-dark toys. Did you ever have those when you were a kid? I remember I had a, the Weebles. Does anybody remember Weebles? Hey, Randy, you remember Weebles? Little, you know, Weeble and they wobble, but they won't fall down. I even remember the commercial. It's a great marketing. Um, but I had little Weebles, like haunted house, and they had these little white ghosts, and they would glow in the dark. You, you could put them up next to the light bulb and turn the lights out, and you could Weeble and wobble them, and they just glowed. The closer they got and the longer they were in the presence of the light source, the, the longer and more radiant they glowed, right? It just sort of, it sort of took into them. And this is what's going on with Moses. He's in the presence of the glory of God. And the glory of God literally is, is reflected in his very countenance as he comes down the mountain. He's glowing with the glory of God. You flip a few pages over in your Bible and you find the Israelites moving moving around in the Exodus, and they, they built a tabernacle, which was a, a temporary worship location for the people of God, and it moved wherever they moved. They would set up the tabernacle. They would set it up in the middle of the camp of the people. 
And it was there in the midst of the tabernacle where the the Ark of the Covenant rested. And there on the Ark of the Covenant is where, symbolically at least, the, the presence of the glory of God dwelt. Exodus 40, verse 34. The cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And all throughout the Old Testament, you see this cloud associated with the glory of God. When you think of this, don't think of like white fluffy cloud with little angels floating on it. Think storm cloud with lightning kind of cloud. Verse 38 of chapter 40, For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night. This was a a fierce cloud. It was not a fluffy cloud. I guess it could be fierce and fluffy, but you get the point. But God had established that it was to be right in the middle, and the cloud rested right in the middle of the people because symbolically they needed to know that their whole entire existence revolved around one central feature of reality, and that is the glory of God in the middle of His people. And the glory of God went before them, and they followed, and whenever they stopped, the glory of God protected protected them. Even when the tabernacle is behind and the temple is built in 1 Kings chapter 8, Solomon completes the temple. Verse 10, when the priest came out of the holy place, guess what happened? A cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priest could not stand to minister before the cloud. Why? Because the glory of the Lord filled the house. The glory of the Lord. By the time we get to the end of the Old Testament, we have the prophet Ezekiel. And he's seeing via prophecy the people of God who are now in utter, outright, abject rebellion against the God who is their glory. And God gives Ezekiel a vision. And in that vision, he sees the cloud of the glory of the Lord rise up from the temple and move to the threshold of the temple and then leave the temple. It was a tragic picture of God's ultimate judgment that His glory has now departed from His people. And they're on their own. And as we get to the end of the Old Testament, that's the status of Israel. However, the prophets have told us that it won't always be that way. That there's a time coming when the glory of God will once again be among His people. That the glory of God will return. Isaiah 60, verse 1, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the people. But the Lord will arise upon you, and His glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light, and the kings to the brightness of your rising. It was a picture of a day when the glory of the Lord would return to His people, and all the nations would once again see the glory of the Lord and be drawn to the Lord of glory. Isaiah particularly connected the return of the glory of God to one he calls the branch of Jesse. When you and I flip a few more pages over and we get to the New Testament, we see in full exactly what Isaiah only saw in part. God's glory indeed would return among His people, but not like a cloud. No. The glory of God would arise among His people on a quiet little night in Bethlehem in an out-of-the-way sort of place when a baby is born. When the God of all glory becomes incarnate 
in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the glory of God is encapsulated in human flesh and born. The New Testament describes the Lord Jesus this way, Hebrews 1.3. He is the radiance of the glory of God. The exact imprint of His nature. John 1.14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen His glory. His glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul describes Jesus Christ as the, the Lord of glory. Indeed, in Christ, the glory of God that had departed from the temple has now returned in human form and is walking among men, living and breathing and speaking and acting in their very presence. It is the glory of God displayed in utter humility. John chapter 2, verse 11. We see the first miracle of Jesus. Do you remember what it was? Jesus turns water into into wine. In verse 11, this, the first of his signs, Jesus did in Cana, at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. But it was in secret and only a few saw it. And then in Luke chapter 9, you remember he says to three of his disciples, three, yeah, three, Peter, James, John, let's take a hike, let's go hiking. And he went up on the mountain. And it tells us, and as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. And they were blown away. For just a second, those three guys got to see that the flesh veil removed and had a glimpse of the glory of Christ, who he really is. And they were blown away. But again... Three guys in an out-of-the-way place. And as Jesus makes His way towards Jerusalem, toward the cross, He knows what's coming. And He knows that He's about to die for the sins of the world. And He knows that in the moment when He's hanging on that cross, paying the price for our sin, that He will be in one moment displaying the glory of God in a way that has never been seen before. John chapter 12, verse 23, Jesus said to to them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now my soul is troubled, he says. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose I've come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I'll glorify it again. It was the will of the Father that the Son of God, God in human flesh, die on the cross, reconciling sinful men to their holy Creator, being the the apex of His display of His glory. When you and I look at the cross, we see all of the attributes of God displayed in vivid color. 
We see in the death of Jesus and in the blood running down the cross, we see in that moment the glory of God. We see the wrath of God. We see the justice of God. We see the holiness of God. Yet we at the same time see the love of God and the mercy of God and the grace of God. All of that in vivid display on the cross. God is glorified in that. And His glory is on display. All of His attributes are there. And most could not perceive it. You see, the glory of God is the central issue in the salvation of human beings. It is the central issue. It is the heart of the gospel. God made men in His image and in the image of His glory. Yet Romans tells us that all men have sinned and fallen short of what? The glory of God. And in Christ dying on the cross and shedding His his blood for the sins of the world, the writer of Hebrews tells us that what He was doing in that very moment was bringing many sons to glory. That's the heart of the Gospel. Romans chapter 1, Although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful. That's the heart of human rebellion. God has made His glory known to men. And although men have seen it and perceived it, men have chosen to refuse to give Him glory. And instead they make their own gods out of men, creatures, themselves. And that's really the difference between lost people and saved people. Saved people are people who glorify God. And lost people are people who refuse to glorify God. People who know who He is and yet don't glorify Him as God. This brings us to really all the solas of the Reformation, doesn't it? When Luther and Calvin and Cranmer and all of the others that we've been getting glimpses of in these weeks have been telling us is that salvation... The way for men to be made right with their God against whom they've sinned. That for that to happen, it only happens by the grace of God. There's nothing in us that merits our salvation. It is only because God is gracious, because He chooses to be gracious and not give us what we deserve. And He's gracious to us in granting us the ability to perceive and to believe in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And He grants us the faith in order to exercise it as we respond to the Gospel. So it's by grace, and it's through faith, and it's in Christ. And none of that has anything to do with us or our works. That's why Paul says we have no reason to boast. At the end of the day, it's a train. It's a train that is run by the Lord Jesus Christ start to finish And when the train gets to its destination and you and I arrive in the beauty and glory of heaven and we see the full display of God's glory, we will be able to say at that moment, Sola Deo Gloria. I've done nothing to get here, but praise God that I am. The result is all glory goes to Him. Our salvation start to finish is all about the glory of God. Salvation is not about you. It is not even about me. 
or anyone else. Salvation start to finish is about the glory of God. Although God loves us, and yes, He does love us, we are not the focus of His saving work. His saving us is for ultimately His glory. It just so happens that His glory is also our good. So praise God, it works both ways. Salvation is start to finish a work of God. And God alone deserves the glory. If you're here this morning and you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you've ever come to the place in your life when you have looked in the mirror of yourself and you've realized, I am a sinner who is a rebel against my God, that I am a person who was created in His image, but I have sinned and fallen short of His glory. And I am hopelessly lost, destined for an eternal hell, the just judgment due for my sin. And my only hope is the Lord Jesus Christ. If you've ever come to that realization and believed that in your heart and had a moment in your life when you bowed before the Lord Jesus and said something along the lines of, Lord Jesus, I am doomed unless you would save my rotten soul. In this moment, I place my faith in you and my trust in you to do for me what I could never, ever in a lifetime of good works do for myself. Forgive my sin, O Lord, and save my soul. If you've ever had that experience in your life, and that's become the reality of your life, you've been redeemed by the Lord Jesus Christ. The theme song of your life can only be, Sola Deo Gloria. To God alone be the glory. Because that's a work He's done in you. Not because you deserved it. Not because you've earned it. Not because you're holier than the next guy. Not because you're more intelligent than the next guy. But because God has sovereignly chosen to glorify Himself in you. By saving you. And by launching you out in the world to be a reflection of His glory to others. Glory of God alone. We're not saved by good works. That's the heart of Reformation theology. But we are saved in order to do good works. And in doing good works, we glorify our Father in heaven. You get that difference? That is the heart of the Reformation. Our works don't save us. There are no good works to save us. But we're saved to do them because in doing them, it magnifies the glory of our Father. Ephesians 2.10, we're His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Matthew 5.16, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Psalm 115 that we began with, uh, the psalmist begins by declaring via a song of worship, right? Not to us, not to us, O Lord, but to your name be glory. Because God is glorified and magnified when His people worship Him. It is one of the primary reasons that we gather and we worship. We do it for our own souls, but we also do it because it is a way, a means by which we glorify the Lord. Which is why it's important when we show up for worship that we worship with our whole heart because we're displaying what we think of the glory of God in how we worship. And lost people show up and they worship alongside of us or they attempt to worship alongside of us. And what they're seeing when they see God's church worshiping with enthusiasm is they're seeing a display of what that congregation thinks of the glory of God. 
That changes how you think about what you do on a Sunday morning, doesn't it? Our worship displays His glory. John 15 says, By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit. And so prove to be my disciples. When you and I go out in the world and we display love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control, in ways that don't come natural, you know what we're doing? We're glorifying God. We're magnifying God as glorious. We're, we're like Moses coming off of the mountain. We're, we're reflecting in ways that people can perceive that there is something unique going on, that the glory of God is present in our life and available to them. 2 Corinthians 4.15 For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase in thanksgiving to the glory of God. We take the gospel to the nations. Why do we do that? So that God will receive the glory when people come to faith in Him. It's, it's why we share the gospel, for the glory of God. 1 Peter 4.11, listen to this, we'll close here. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that, in everything, what? Say it with me. God may be glorified through Christ Jesus. To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Why is it that we serve the Lord? Why is it that we serve the Lord in whatever fashion we serve? In order that God might be glorified. Because God is glorified in our service. We don't serve because we ought to. We don't serve because we have to. We serve because it is a means by which we put on display the glory of God. That changes how you think about how you serve, doesn't it? If I think about I'm on the, the worship arts team and I'm up here leading the congregation and singing, my serving in that way is a means by which I am glorifying the Lord. If you're a, somebody who's not in this room right now, and there are a number of somebodies who are down that hallway in those little rooms probably about to pull their hair out right now because the preacher is preaching too long, their serving and their service is a display of the glory of God. It tells us something about the glory of God. That changes how you approach, how you serve. In fact, everything redounds to His glory. Anything the good that comes out of my life or yours is due to the glory of God. And the result is I ought to live for His glory. That displaying the glory of God in my life and through my actions and through my words should not be something I stumble upon every once in a while, but it ought to be the active intention of my life. You see, it changes when we understand the glory of God. When we understand the glory of God, it, it helps us die to ourselves. When we realize that I am living not for my own glory, I'm living for the glory of God. I don't have to fight for my own rights. I don't have to defend my own cause. I don't have to exalt my own self so people will think about me a certain way. I can live intentionally. I can serve intentionally. I can love intentionally. I can bear fruit intentionally because I'm not the center of the point anyway. It's the glory of God. And so I can lay down my rights. A.W. Tozer said it this, The glory of God always comes at the sacrifice of self. The next time you, as a Christian, are in a situation where you feel like exalting yourself or defending yourself or asserting your rights or demanding something or the other, ask yourself the question, 
at this very moment, who needs to be glorified? God or me? Because that's often the choice we have to make as we choose our words, as we choose our actions. Who am I glorifying? Am I glorifying myself or am I glorifying the Lord? If I glorify the Lord, I die to myself. I don't matter. My rights don't matter. My opinions don't matter. The glory of God matters. Listen, if you're here this morning, you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Then that means that you're lost. God created you to bear His image, but you have rebelled and sinned against Him. And you, by your very existence, living for yourself, are daily robbing Him of the glory due His name. You were designed to live for His glory. In this very moment, you're living for your own glory. And the Bible says that if that extends to the end of your life, you will die and you will go to an eternal hell. And you'll go there because you deserve to go there, because you've earned that reward by your sin. And there will be no one to help you. And you will spend eternity enduring the just wrath of God on you for what you've done. Well, the Bible declares to us it does not have to be that way. Because just as all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Jesus Christ came and died. An exact the radiance of the glory of God. God in human flesh died the death you deserved. Shed His blood that you might have eternal life. If you would but believe in Him, turn from your selfish, sinful, self-glorifying life, die to yourself and embrace the Lord Jesus Christ and trust Him to do for you what only He can do. Cry out to Him this morning, Forgive me, O God. Forgive my sin. Forgive my self-glorification. I want to live for your glory. The Bible says that if any man or any woman does such an audacious thing as that, the God of all glory has made a promise that he will hear that prayer, he will forgive your sin, and he will make you a new person. He will transform your selfish soul into a soul that loves, thirsts, hungers to live for his glory. There's no excuse for leaving here this morning continuing to live for your own glory. Repent. Trust the Lord Jesus. And be made new by Him. If you're a Christian here this morning, do you truly live your life for the glory of God alone? Have you died to yourself? Do you serve for His glory? Do you live every day trying to bear fruit that He might be glorified? Are you sharing your faith so that heaven might rejoice and God might be magnified in the salvation of someone you love and know? If not, why not? Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, You alone are glorious. There is none like You. Who among the heavens is like You, O Lord? The answer is there is none like You. You are eminently glorious. You are completely and utterly set apart from everyone and everything. You are the blazing sun that we can't even begin to fully comprehend. But we pray that you would, Lord, shine your glory among us, that we might see it, that you might be magnified and highlighted, that we might be able to see your glory more fully, that we might savor and enjoy your glory 
in our presence and through our lives. And that we might celebrate your glory when we're together and when we live our lives. Lord, for those of us who know you through your son Jesus, we know you because of one reason. You have graciously granted us the faith to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ that we might be saved. And we corporately, collectively declare before you this morning, Oh God, all glory, praise, and honor to you for saving our souls. We've done nothing. You've done it all. And so we celebrate you and we thank you. Our hearts overflow with gratitude. Make us mirrors that reflect your glory to the world around us. When people encounter us, may they see you magnified through us and be drawn to you in faith. We glorify you, O God, today. And all God's people said, Amen.